word. So we are going to be in Galatians uh, 3 this morning. We'll be reading uh, from uh, that chapter in just a few minutes, but I want to kind of set the stage for us um, and uh, bring up something that I think is the single biggest gap in most of our spiritual lives. The reason for the single biggest gap, and that might sound hyperbolic, maybe it is, but I think this is an issue, this is a conversation that we need to have, because even for the most devout and seasoned of Christians, even for someone who has been a Christian for a long, long, long time, this is an area that we sometimes uh, not stumble in, but aren't really confident in and don't really have it all together in, and that's just our humanity showing but I want to try to add to that today with, some, with, with God's Spirit to help us um, overcome this gap. Now, it's something that when we start unpacking it, uh, I think you're going to think to yourself, um, you know, that's really something that's been foggy in my faith. That's really an area of my faith and my spiritual life that, uh, yeah, I would admit sometimes I'm a bit foggy and sometimes I'm a bit, um, a, a bit detached about. And, and it's such a big part of it. It's really the core part of it. Um, it would be kind of not good uh, for that to persist. So uh, this is something that is so important to pretty much every aspect of our lives. It's not just a thing about our spiritual lives. This is, this is something that, uh, that really is important in every situation, every environment we find ourselves in where we're interacting, interfacing, answering to, dealing with somebody else. So any environment, any situation in life where it's more than just you, which is most, most situations, even if you work alone, you're working for somebody or around or in network with somebody, um, whether somebody that you live with, really important there, uh, someone that you work with or work for, uh, whether in a classroom setting, any kind of shared space uh, or scenario where you're cohabitating or cooperating, existing alongside somebody else. Um, in any of these, in any of those settings, and really in most settings in life, every one of us serves a specific purpose. That in any environment where we're interfacing or dealing with other people at home, at work, at school, even something you do for fun, there's always a specific purpose that you play, a specific role or part that either you are assigned or you sign up for, uh, volunteer voluntarily or because it's just part of the part of the job. Uh, it's like when you, if you were to look at the schematics of a piece of machinery or some sort of mechanism, and you, it, you know. Way back, thinking about how they were originally made with pulleys and belts and shifting weights, levers and ramps and moving parts. All those things work together. Uh, and yet they all perform a specific task uh, in order for the larger machine to operate. We've all seen those Rube uh, Goldberg machines, right? The, the cartoonist who was an inventor. Um, and they would all kind of do something in the beginning would set off a series of motions that in the end would produce a desired result or effect. Um, every part, every pulley, every lever, every way, every ramp and ball and all the things involved in it have to do their part for the whole thing to work and function properly. So likewise... For a home, for a classroom, for a workplace to function and flow ideally, which that isn't always the case, of course, but to, be, uh, to function ideally, everybody kind of needs to know where and how they plug into the equation. So for this reason, most people, and I caveat most people, uh, not all people, because most people, um, most people don't end up 
let's say, living with someone if they haven't had this kind of conversation. Now, it happens, but it's not ideal. And usually they wish they would have if they get down the road and it didn't happen beforehand. Um, before you start a job, before you start a class, there's always syllabus day, right? Uh, you start a job, you get interviewed, and you get the rundown. Um, if you enter into a partnership or a legal agreement with somebody, uh, whether it's a superior or an equal, um, you're almost guaranteed to have a conversation or at least have been handed a document that explains in great length and clarity uh, how you fit into the equation and how you are to relate to the other parties involved. We all kind of think we can relate to there, whether it was your first day on the job or maybe down the road at the job, you had to be brought into an office and say, did we clarify what your job is actually about? And maybe they didn't, and it was on them. Um, but in any of these situations, you either initiate or contribute to a conversation. You listen to someone or someone gives you a lecture, best day of school all, is always the first day. Even though you didn't want to go, you just kind of know that it's just going to be syllabus day and you're going to get out a few minutes early. At least that's the way it is in college. And, and that's, all, that's the last good day of the year. Really pessimistic view of school, right? Uh, but the last good day of the year is the, after syllabus day. It's all downhill. But uh, whether it's school, work, uh, any situation, relationship that you enter into, um, there's all, all parties have an understanding of how they fit in, the role they play, the purpose they have in that relationship. And whether it's syllabus day, whether it's, hey, the first date, uh, whether it's the conversation you have when you want to take things more serious, uh, whether it's the first day on the job, or just some sort of, uh, you know, going to, to understand if you can get a loan, all of these really have the same conversation. It's just in a different format and in a different, through a different lens. But you could call all these conversations um, what, what many call the DTR, which is defining the relationship. That DTR conversations are crucial for couples, for partners in business, for employees and employers, for teachers and students, coaches and athletes, that unless the relationship has been defined, the outcome of whatever partnership, whatever cohabitation, whatever, you know, working alongside each other, whatever you anticipated or desired, it's not going to work unless prior to or entering into the relationship was defined. Because if things are going to function to the best of everybody's ability or unto the desired end, everyone has to know how they fit into the relationship and what role they are meant to serve. And everyone, uh, is everyone equally contributing? Is it a marriage where, you know, two equals enter into a relationship? Is it some sort of job where, you know, you're the bottom of the totem pole? It doesn't matter whether you're equal or inferior or superior. You just kind of have to know what your role is and how you fit in. Otherwise, there's going to be expectations. There's going to be anticipation that either people will be disappointed or people wonder, you know, what are, what's their intention or what's their, what's, you know, what's their desire in all of this? Now, does someone carry or do more than the other? It may be different for each situation, um, and things may operate against conventions in some, but unless everyone knows and is on board, it could be a big mess, which is why a DTR is so crucial. Now, I told you all this, that surprisingly, um, this is really the reason for the biggest, or I think the single biggest gap in our spiritual lives, because even though we know a lot about the Bible, and we've been in church a lot, and you might have never missed a service, and you've been here since you were a kid, a lot of us have never really had the relationship defined with where we stand with God, because so many of us do not know, or maybe aren't really sure, where we stand with God, where we stand with God, and how God feels about us. So many of us, if we're being honest, if we're being honest, kind of make it up as we go. 
and never really find a firm footing. This is why some days we feel super spiritual. Some days we feel close to God. Some days we feel super lost and removed from God. It's why some days we have a firm grasp on our relationship. And some days we wonder if we even have a relationship. Some days we're on it. Some days we could not be farther off of it. And, and I'll wager, I'll wager that the reason why this is the case for so many of us is because we've never really had this DTR with God. We've been told about God. We've been given all the information about God, but we have never personally had this conversation. And even when we've been in church for years, if we're being honest, we couldn't define the relationship if we were asked to. And why, for many Christians in today's world, they sort of just kind of nod and parrot what they're being told to do in any given season. This is the age-old question of religion. What actually defines our relationship with God? And as it says on the screen, is it something that we do? Is it something that he does? Is it something that both of us have to do? And, you know, is it weighted? How does it work? Does he initiate the relationship? Is it up to us to pursue a bond with him? Can it be severed? Can we walk away? Can he walk away? Can I do something to invalidate the approval he gave me at the beginning? Every religion has a different take on this. And every branch of every religion have different takes on this. And within and throughout Christianity, there are believers who really don't know where they stand with God and how their relationship is supposed to work. Now, maybe that's not the case for you. So this is going to just sharpen and strengthen what is already solid for you. But I'd wager for most of us, even if we can fire off confessions and creeds, there are days, there are situations, there are seasons we find ourselves in where we kind of just feel exposed and feel vulnerable and we feel uneasy and we wonder, is this how it's supposed to be? I don't know really how to go to God about this because we've never had this conversation. So I'm going to have it for you or I'm going to do it for you and you can join in if you'd like to. Today, our objective is pretty simple to, give a, to get and obtain a clear and personal understanding of what it means to be a Christian. So that's pretty important. I think today is going to help us be grounded and secure in our faith, which in today's world, in our current climate and circumstances and uncertainty, we need security and we need stability more than ever. So God wants to have a talk with us, this DTR conversation, because he sees a lot of us sort of making it up as we go, riding the waves of life, embracing for impact, in some seasons. So if God could have one audible conversation with you right now, because he sees a lot of us making it up, he sees a lot of us struggling, I think it would be defining the relationship he desires to have with you, because for so many, I think there are gaps in our faith, gaps that threaten to undermine and damage our faith. So today, we're going to have a define the relationship conversation, Christian edition, from God to us. Now, our launching point in this conversation is going to be Galatians 3. Now, most of you know the deal by now. We're studying Galatians, uh, which the first two chapters of Galatians is a defense written by Paul. He defends his faith. He defends his, uh, from his opposition. He defends his calling. He defends the Galatians from the same force. He, his defense is rooted in his personal encounter with God, how the experience has shaped his ministry, giving him a burden and a passion for evangelism. And as the pages turn into chapter 3 through the end of the book, he shifts from a defense to a definition, from defending his relationship and his experience to defining what a relationship looks like, what a relationship the Galatians should have with God, 
and eventually what we all should have with God and what we should have with each other. So that's really the subject of the next few chapters in Galatians, the next few weeks of our time together. We're going to look at just chapter 3 and the beginning of 4 today as Paul leads us into this DTR. So let's follow along and read together the first nine verses as Paul gets to the basics of what it means to be in a relationship with God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly betrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit of you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And then Paul brings in a very important person to history of the faith. Just as Abraham believed God, it was credited to him, accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons or children of Abraham. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you, as in through you, and in a descendant that's going to come through you, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham, or the Abraham who had faith. Now, as we bridge from two to three, in the beginning, uh, chapter, uh, beginning chapters of Galatians, Paul has addressed how, uh, how the Galatians have been um, under attack, under um, a, a message from the opposition, Paul's enemies, people that were against him. Uh, they were Jewish Christians, Jewish Christian leaders. Um, they had put their faith in Jesus, but they did not want to let go of their Jewishness. And we'll talk about that for just a minute. Um, they did not like that Paul was taking the gospel to Gentiles and not first informing them about the Jewish history. So Paul says, I'll one-up you. I'll take it to the very beginning of Jewish history and make sure they know where all this comes from. But he doesn't start with who they thought he would. They thought he would start with Moses. He starts with Abraham, which that's important. But this, this message that was coming at the Galatians that had fooled them for a season was this idea that to become a Christian, you must first confess and follow Judaism. The Old Testament religion laid out in Leviticus, laid out in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, that the Jews would follow along and worship in the temple. The Jewish Christians thought, well, you can't be a Christian unless you first confess and follow Judaism. For men, that required surgery. That was fun. For women and children, well, you got to go on in, but it still required a lot of customary changes, a lot of dietary changes, a lot of you know, uh, following after codes and rituals and all sorts of things that had nothing to do with Jesus. There's a word for this. You've probably heard it before. Paul uses it back in chapter 2. They were trying to Judaize Christianity which is why we often hear them called Judaizers from Judaism. Now, this prompts a lot of questions about the Old Testament, our connection to the Jewish faith, and we'll cover that because this isn't Paul saying the Old Testament is not important. He literally tells one of the oldest stories from the Old Testament in his defense of Christianity and his definition of Christianity. But the essence, the core of this agenda, because it's more relevant to us than you might think, the message from these Judaizers was you've got to get pre-approved before you can get saved. 
Now, we know about pre-approval because you can't get a loan until you're pre-approved for a loan, and then sometimes they say you're pre-approved and you're actually not. So you really don't know if you're going to actually get in. That's just a, a way to kind of make it take longer to get you in because they really don't want you in, right? But you've got to get pre-approved to be able to get saved. In essence, something's got to change before Jesus can change everything. Yes, only Jesus can save you, but there's some stuff about you we don't like, and we need you to get rid of those things first, and then come back, and then maybe Jesus can help you. If that doesn't sound like Christianity, it's because it's not Christianity. But sadly, many churches fall into that same place that the Judaizers were trying to take the early church. Now, if that sounds antithetical to the gospel, it's because it is antithetical and contrary to the gospel. So let me be very clear. Salvation is not accomplished by our flesh. Our color, our culture, our creed, or our code. You can be proud about who you are and where you're from and what your culture and all that is. You can love your religious traditions and you can be the best version of that you might want to possibly be. But none of that saves anybody. Only faith in Christ saves us to God. Now, many of the early Jewish Christians, they confessed this, but they had a hard time letting go of this, especially the color and culture part. As they thought, surely only Jews can really be saved. And, but this isn't really a Jewish problem. This is a religious problem. Religion loves to divide people up. It loves to divide humanity because that, too, is antithetical to God's mission and desire for us to be one people. Religion only works when the variables are limited and under control. Judaism was no different. And some of the early church leaders wanted Christianity to be the same. To ensure that if you weren't going to cooperate with them, you just didn't even try and to concentrate religious control to just a few. And doesn't that sound a lot like modern day religion? Doesn't that sound sadly like a lot of churches? They will make it so complicated that you really won't want to join because it's just so, uh, you know, you've got to be way up here and you're so down there and we feel sorry for you, but you just probably aren't ever going to be as good as us. Now, don't get me wrong. This is for, there's two reasons why, this, why religion does this. To create a tier system and to create a fear system. A tier system as in, well, some of us are just better than you. Some of us are just more holy. We can't really help it. You know, yeah, God loves everybody. You know, he loves the little children and everybody equal in their own way. But, you know, sometimes based on color and creed and culture, you know, there's just some that are better. And that's just, that's just how it is. Sadly, that is a core of how religion operates. And it's fueled by this fear system. Where those on top leverage and control those beneath for their own benefit. Make no mistakes, that's what this is about. An attempt to micromanage and lord over newfound converts to take attention away from God and gain it for themselves. That will, that's what was going on with, Galatian, with the Galatian people. Practically every system in the world, not just religion, operates based on fear. At very least, it leverages fear at some point. Politics, corporate work environments, sometimes even educational systems. The higher-ups care more about their own place than yours, and they just need you to make them look good, and they use fear to keep you in line. But let me say this as clear as possible with as much passion as possible. Christianity is not merit-based or fear-based, as in it's not based on what you do or how good you are at it. And it's not based on keeping you in line by fear. It is not merit-based. It is not fear-based. It is faith-based. By God's love, by God's mercy, and by God's grace.
You know, some teachers, bosses, and politicians kind of want you to feel like you're always hanging on the edge of this world. And it's up to them to keep you from falling. And it's up to you keep staying in line to not lose traction. But that is not the case with Jesus. There is no rank system. There is no fear system. You can find rest in him. God wants us to know that, is, that this is definitely not what it means to be in a relationship with him. When it comes to our security and our stability, both eternal and internal salvation in Christ promises permanence and confidence. When, some, when you become a Christian, you receive the spirit of Jesus, not my spirit, not anybody else's spirit. So don't let anybody make you feel inferior or invalid in your walk and in your faith. Because you might not be like them, but that, don't mean you, that does not mean you don't have him. As in, just because you might not do it the way they do it, doesn't mean you still don't have the spirit of God who is doing it through you the way he wants to do it through you. We often compare ourselves and look over our shoulder too much and too Quickly, it is as much from what you have is as much from God, and you are as much with God as anybody else is when you're in Christ. Let me say this because this is more to me than it is anybody, probably. Your insecurities are not from God, they are from the enemy to disrupt your faith and to tear you down. When we become a Christian, as Paul tells Timothy, God has given us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self control. The power of God in us, the love of God through us, and the ability to be who we've been called to be and who we want to be in Christ. So if that's not the Christianity you signed up for, today's the day to renegotiate your deal. And I've got good news. You can tear up the old one and walk out of here with a brand new, eternally locked in at 0% financing for the low, low price of free. Sadly, this was not just a problem 2,000 years ago in the Jewish versus Gentile church. It is still a problem today. We often feel and often believe that faith is not enough. Trusting in God is not enough. Religion will try to trick us into signing up for something that promises more. The world convinces us that our experience is not as legitimate as somebody else's. That's why we chase after signs and assurance and some sort of experience that will take us to the next level. It's why we give up so easily when things don't go our way. Rather than looking for God wherever we are, we conclude that he's nowhere near us. This is what happens when the basis for our salvation is not Christ alone. When it's somebody we have to be, something we have to do. You see, religion will always downplay Jesus' saving power, suggesting that faith in him is not enough. But think about it this way. Religion wants you to think that Jesus is just training wheels to get you started. But no, no, no. Jesus is the bike. Uh, religion wants us to think that Jesus is the security system, but he's the foundation of the house. He's not just to get you started and get you going. He is the security and the firm foundation to keep you and to hold you and to build you up. The problem for the Jewish believers, they already had a bike and they already had a house, and they couldn't imagine leaving that for something new. After all, the Jewish believers, uh, the, for the Jewish believers, they had Judaism. Wasn't Judaism from God? Wasn't it established as the way to get to him? And shouldn't Christianity be an addition to that, not a replacement? Well, to answer that set of questions, Judaism, as they had interpreted it, was not as God intended. And it did not uh, need to be added to. It needed to be replaced. And that's what Christianity came to do. The reason this is so important, it reframes the entire idea of what it has ever meant to be in a relationship with God. And Paul, 
says from the very beginning, he says, y'all want me to go Old Testament? Because you know I know it better better than y'all do. You want me to go Old Testament? I'll go Old Testament, but I'm not starting with Moses and the law. I'm going back farther to Abraham. Because it's in his story we understand that salvation has never been about who you are, what you've done in and of your flesh. It's always been about what God has done. Salvation, coming into a relationship with God, has always been by faith, as he tells us in chapter, verses 6 through verses 9. So I want to talk about the story of Abraham real quickly. Before there were laws and prophets, there was Abraham. Abraham enters the story at a very crucial time in history. Maybe, it was work, maybe it's more dire than you have been told it was. Uh, the fall, of course, happens. Adam and Eve, they sin, and everything's unraveled before it even gets started. Uh, but time, life moves on, and the world moves on, and they have children, and their children have children, and then the world gets really populated and really advanced, and the cultures begin to form, and countries begin to be established, and then everybody just has completely walked away from God. Except God sees Noah being a righteous man, being a God-fearing man. And God says, Noah, you found grace in my eyes, so we're going to do something. We're going to flood the earth, and we're just going to save you and your family. And we're going to restart with y'all. But God knew what was going to happen. Even though the earth got a bath, their hearts were still fallen as the previous generations were. Noah and his uh, seven siblings got off the ark, and they were as sinful as they were when they got on the ark. But it showed us that only God could save anybody from the wrath we deserve. It was the ark that saved them, not their goodness. Over time, as they began to repopulate the earth, the world got as wicked or worse and more distant from God as before. Humanity united in rebellion against God. And a few hundred years later, around 2000 B.C., get this, there were no believers on earth. No, not one. Can you imagine that? I mean, you know, we feel like we're a minority in today's world. There's a couple billion of us, and maybe they're not all committed to Christ, but there's millions of us. But 2000 B.C., there were zero believers and God Almighty. The whole world spoke one language, and they fell under the leadership of a tyrant who convinced them there was no God. It was all about man. They set out to build a shrine to mankind, what the, what the people of that day called a ziggurat. We call it the Tower of Babel. But think about the essence of the tower. Where did this notion come from? It came from this innate desire in every heart to find God and know God. They built a tower to reach heaven to suggest they were able to make it to heaven without God. They were gods themselves. God responded this time, not with a flood, but by confusing the languages. He spread them all over the earth and laid the foundation for the nations that we have to this day as the people were scattered. But God saw there was a systemic problem in humanity. Nobody knew him, and worse than that, nobody knew how to know him or find him. So God decides to start with one man, and with that one man who was not looking for him, by the way. This one man, he was going to show the world how they could find him and what it means to know him. So back in Genesis 12 we see the very first DTR to find the relationship conversation between God and his personal choice, Abraham. Called Abram at the time. We don't know why he picked Abram, but it's encouraging when we think about, when we hear a little bit more about Abram. Abram was a nobody. 
He was 75 years old and had not made anything happen in his life. He was renting property from his daddy at age 75. You think you're struggling. I mean, what about this guy? We, you know, we, we badmouth millennials for moving back in when they're in their 20s. He was 75 years old. Still live with dad. That's okay. He and his wife, Sarah, could not have kids. How do you think Sarah felt about that? You know, living with dad and all nephews and all that. Sarah was barren. She could not have a child. They were sitting around in a cramped village, worshiping rocks, hoping that one day things might change. Nobody was singing, Lord, send a revival. Nobody was singing, oh, how I love Yahweh. Nobody was worshiping God. They were worshiping rocks. And God looks down in a sea of millions of people and picks this nobody who was not even, not even a, a has-been. He was a never was. who had never been anybody who did not have faith and did not worship him. And suddenly, Abram hears a voice, not from the rock, but from the heavens. And out of nowhere, I want to show you the scripture where this takes place. And I want you to notice a few things. I've highlighted them. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. I mean, come on, buddy. It's time to move out. You're old. Go from your country to a land that I will show you. As in, I'm not telling you where I'm taking you, but I'll show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that, as in, based on what I'm going to do, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, someone that's going to come from you is going to bless the whole world. I mean, think about what this would be like to hear this. No Bible, no, no synagogues, no temple. Nobody's worshiping the Lord. And Abram hears this voice from the heavens. And God says, I will, I will, I will. As in this is going to be something I'm going to do. And I'm not going to tell you how it's going to be done ahead of time. So nice to meet you, Abram. I'm God, you're mine. Trust in me and you'll be fine. So can we go ahead and get it on, get the program going? I mean, he doesn't even give Abraham a chance to pray about it. Of course, who would he pray to? He had never prayed. He doesn't even give him a chance to ask questions. He says, are you in? And Abram, I mean, we don't know. I mean, clearly the Spirit of God had to work in this, of course. But Abram, almost like the Apostle Paul, set against God in his flesh, thought to himself, what do I got to lose? I mean, what did Abraham have to lose? What do you have to lose? We make a big deal about, oh, there's just so much that I might have to give up. Oh, come on. This is an invitation from God Almighty, the creator of heaven and the ruler of heaven and earth. If we have to give up all the treasures in the world, all the appointments, all the commitments, it would still be nothing compared to what he has in store for us. I've said it before. The, the best life we could ever live on this earth is still a nightmare compared to what God has in store for us. I don't want you to have a nightmare, but I'm just saying the best possible life is nothing compared to what he has in store for you. 
Where we mess up is we think God is just offering us a different, just religious way. And we think, well, that's not going to be fun. But God is offering us a higher and greater and better way. It's a relationship with him. Abraham had nothing to lose, but know this. If he had chosen not to follow the Lord, he would have forfeited everything. He didn't know that. But we do. God promised that through this one man, all the world will be blessed. This, world, this word blessing speaks of favor from God. Not just a good day, not just, oh, God bless me with some, you know, whatever you're asking for. You know, I pray for hot donuts or whatever that simple things my little mind wants. But this is bigger than that, right? This is a blessing that would be the favor from God. This is bigger than a country being blessed because they're good to another country. This is God talking about how through this one man will come a blessing for all people, a single shared blessing for every person to possess. Just to let you know, he's talking about Jesus. That's what Paul has told us here in Galatians chapter 3. The, 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 the nations being blessed spoke of Christ coming through Abraham. Now, of course, there's a whole Israel, and that's important, and that's obviously a big deal. But he's talking about how Jesus would come through Abraham and how through Abraham the whole world would come to know the one true God. God chose Abraham to work on this and work this out and to demonstrate how this blessing might be obtained. But as the story goes on, Abraham got a little worried. He wasn't having any kids. 75 turns to 85, 85 turns to 95, 95 turns to, oh my gosh, I'm almost 100. And Abraham gets himself in a little bit of a tussle and people are kind of out to get him. So the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. And Abraham, he says, fear not, I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. And Abraham's thinking, well, I'm, I'm counting, on, I'm waiting on it. And Abraham says, oh Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. I'm waiting on this gift, and God, you're, you haven't even given me one child. Abram said, I got it double. Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. So he says it twice. The next verse, he repeats himself. You've given me no offspring. So how can I change the world? You haven't even changed my world. God says, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And I got to think, we, we can look back and realize God was talking about much more than just the nation of Israel. Paul tells us this was about much more than just a nation. This was about believers who would follow the same road that Abraham took to trust God even when it didn't make complete sense. So Abraham believed the Lord. And God counted it, credited it to him as righteousness. As in, Abraham, because you have trusted me, you and not I are now in a relationship that is inseparable. God makes it clear to Abraham that things are going to happen on his terms, that there was no negotiation. It was by faith and faith alone. I don't know if Abraham knew, but he just trusted. Now, maybe you're wondering, where does and why does the law come into the picture after this? Because the Jews were hung up about the law, but God, Paul goes back before the law to Abraham, but about the law. God didn't change his approach. He doubled down on it, and he gave the law to reinforce it. Because we forget, what was given in tandem with the law? 
the sacrificial system that made a way to atone for breaking it. As in God gave the law and knew they weren't going to be able to keep it, so He gave a system to atone for it in tandem with it. The law was given to perpetually expose and convey to the Jews that their sin separated them from God. They were saved not by their obedience to the law, but by their faith in the sacrifices being accepted for their sin. That's why Leviticus 1 opens up and says, this is how you're going to atone for your sins because you're going to break this law you just got. Lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. This is called the simica which is leaning on the animal to transmit your sin to the animal. And in that moment, the lamb or goat would be a living sacrifice for the person's sin and was accepted and offered for atonement for us. Now, is that not a picture of Jesus? But the difference is we don't lay our hands on Jesus to give him our sin do we? You know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about what, what, what God accepts. And he takes the law and he raises the standards. You've heard it said of old, you shall not. But I say, you shall not do, the, you shall not think about it, not just not do it. He goes down the list and he makes it seem like the law is child's play as he makes it seem impossible for anybody to ever be good enough for God. And coming off the mountain, a leper is laying in the street. The one thing that Jesus didn't talk about when he referred to the law, he didn't refer to all those weird uncleanliness codes and all the things about people that were unclean and not acceptable to God because of things they did or things they touched. So, I mean, if you can't obey your way into heaven, then surely these people that are just out to lunch because of diseases and things that they couldn't help, surely they're out, they're, they're hopeless. And here comes this leper calling for Jesus to help him. And Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. As in, touched a man that the law would say, you are unclean and equally condemned for doing so. You see what Jesus is trying to show us here? He laid his hands on this man and took the sin from the man. The night before Jesus died, he did, not just drink, he did not just take our sin, he drank it from a table that God set in front of him. Because God so loved the world, he sent Jesus to lay his hands on us and take our sin before we could ever ask him to get it from us. Philip Yancey says, God did a risky thing by announcing forgiveness ahead of time. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinning, Christ laid his hands on us, took our sin, and died for us. Now look at Galatians 3, verse 10 through 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon Gentiles in Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we've broken God's law. 
We've brought a curse on our lives, but Jesus was cursed and broken for us, bringing God's favor on us. As in Christian, you don't have to bear the guilt and weight of your sin anymore. As a Christian, the first important thing you need to know, the, the main thing you need to know, is you are forgiven because God's favor is on you. Now, maybe you're wondering, if I'm forgiven, what role does God's law or commandments from the Bible serve for me? Are we just free to do whatever we want? Listen to how Paul closes this chapter down in verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because the transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Verse 21. Is the law then against the promise of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has, been, has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the law continues to remind us of our sin and our inability to please God in our flesh. But because Christ has forgiven us, not only do we have forgiveness from our sin, we have freedom from our sin. And by the Spirit given to us, we can now please God. See, here's the thing. Whether we are a believer or not, God is God. His Word is perfect and true. And it's only powerful to us if we have faith. But whether we believe or not, we will, we will be held accountable to Him and to His Word when we die. In a sense, we're all under God's law, all under His jurisdiction. If we die under His law, we will die under His condemnation because we are not able to keep it. But we don't have to die under His law or apart from Him. We don't have to live apart from Him. Verse 23 says, Before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor or our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under this tutor or under this master. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. You are an offspring of Abraham because you have walked by faith like he did. Let's go to, uh, two up. As a Christian, we aren't just forgiven and freed by Christ. We are brought into God's family. This should inform everything we know about being a Christian, that we are under the blood of Jesus. We are now in his bloodline. That's what verse 28 means. Christians is not, Christian is not just a category or a label. It's a new identity. It supersedes our heritage, our status, every role in this life. This wor world will tell you that your gender, your race, your status is, is what defines you. But believers, we can tell the world that something greater defines us. And that's Christian. Galatians 4, Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ from a slave, though he is a master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were under bondage under the elements of this world. But when the fullness of time has come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption 
as sons and daughters of God. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. You are a child, a son, an heir of God through Christ. See, in Christ, we're forgiven of sin by God. We're freed from sin by God. And we're made family with God. All by faith and faith alone. God's adopted you. He's chosen you. He's handpicked you just like he did Abraham. Words and all, disqualifications and all, he has chosen us to be his children. Paul talks about heirs and children. What does he mean by that? In the Roman Empire, children were not automatically heirs. A child had to prove their worth to be adopted. The reason why the language here is referring to sons specifically is because in the Roman Empire, daughters were automatically written out of the will. Often were given into slavery before they were ever able to grow up. But boys were given until age 13. If the boy proved himself to be an able with potential, the father would adopt him. But if not, he would sell him. He would give him away. Maybe even worse. The scripture proves our worth today. God has deemed us valuable, so valuable that Jesus died to prove it. He died to adopt you into God's family. He's not waiting for us to show our worth. He has already defined our worth with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So I say to us, as Paul says in verse 8 and 9, when did you not know God? Who You serve those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? I love that word. Beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage. Not only do you know God, you're known by God. You're valued by God. We can't turn back or turn towards anybody else. How could we? Church, I don't know how you relate to God. I don't know how you walk in relation to him, but I hope this has convinced us all that we can trust him and put our faith in him. We don't have to cower under religion. We don't have to feel judged in comparison to others. We don't have to prove or earn our place. Jesus has forever settled all that. We just have to trust him. But while I can lay all this out for you, I can't believe it for you. I can't receive and open the gift for you. That's something you have to, to experience for yourself. Because of course, it's personal. And if we're not coming to God by faith, we're not coming to God, period. God has laid out the most important DTR you'll ever have where you stand with him, forgiven, freed, and family. Even if you have doubts or are on edge, what do you have to lose? I'll tell you what you have to lose if you say no. Everything. So today and every day going forward, you can say goodbye to guilt, bondage, and separation and receive forgiveness, freedom, and family with God. How can you say no to that? 
How can we as Christians lean on any other or rely on anything else? The devil loves to tell us that this isn't true, but the Holy Spirit rebukes him every time. As Paul would say in Romans 8, For we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. We have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba or Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God, heirs of God, heirs with Christ. I don't got anything else better to tell you. The beyond imaginable imaginable good news of Jesus Christ. Have you believed it? Are you living under that promise? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to sit under your word and have this awesome opportunity laid out for us what it means to be in relationship with you. Father, we don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. Yet you have went out of your way to show to us how we fit into your family, how you love us, and what you have for us. How could we turn to something that is beggarly in comparison? God forbid we do that. Lord, I pray you would move in this house today and remind everybody of their forgiveness, of their freedom, and remind them that they are family to you. They're your child. And you want them to walk in the fullness of this relationship. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.